Very often God's provision involves human responsibility. You can't say, well, Lord, give me a job and just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. No, faith responds in obedience. It expectantly looks for God to provide. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a mini-series looking at the prophet Elijah. This righteous man of God appears on the scene in 1 Kings 17. We see God's care for him shown through the provision of food and water in the midst of a drought. Then, God sends him to visit a widow whom God miraculously provides an unending supply of flour and oil. As we pick up in verse 17, we see the infant son of the widow gets sick and dies. And the widow laments, thinking that God who had first provided for her may now be punishing her for some sin. But as we pick up, we find that God is not capricious, that he has a reason for everything that occurs. Elijah compassionately speaks to this widow. He doesn't lash out. Look at verse 19. He meets her in her grief. Give me your son. Then he took her from her bosom, which tells you he's a little boy and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He doesn't lash out in anger, but he takes her son up to the room where I'm sure he had fought many battles in prayer. And God is about to do something through Elijah that up till this date he had never done in the history of humanity. He is going to bring someone back to life. By the way, do you have an upper room of sorts? You say, I don't need one. I don't want one. That just shows you're unregenerate. Do you have an upper room, a place where you can meet God, where you can convene with God? Remember, James tells us in the New Testament that he was a man of effectual, fervent, earnest prayer. He reminds us that the effectual, fervent, prayer of an earnest, of, of a prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And to illustrate it, he uses Elijah. And so when this tragedy comes, what does he do first? He goes to God in prayer. By the way, when tragedy comes into your life, where do you go first? So we're told in verse 20, he called to the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, Have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He is honest, as seen in the question he asks. He does not know why this boy has died. In essence, he's saying, Lord, what are you doing? What is it, Lord? Oh, God, what do you mean by this? His prayer really begins with a question. And he's pleading the case of this widow before the Lord God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put yourself in prayer for another person, pleading their case, interceding for them? So very often we think when people are in distress that we just need to answer their why questions. But sometimes we don't know the answer to their why questions. When my son and daughter-in-law lost our little grandbaby, I couldn't tell them why. I 
But I had a throne of grace that I could approach and plead with God on their behalf. And so verse 21 informs us that Elijah stretches himself across the boy and notice how he prays and he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, oh Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. God records for us that three times he does this. Why? Because he's showing that this is fervent, earnest prayer. In Jesus' language, it's asking, seeking, knocking prayer. Have you ever been into the presence of God where the pain of the problem is so great you just fall on your face before God and you lay it all out? That's what Elijah's doing. There's an example much like this in 2 Kings 19. You can turn there or you can just listen if you want. Let me set the context. Hezekiah, he's a good king, which tells you he's in the southern kingdom, Judah. He is uh, ruling. And at this point, the Assyrians have overthrown the 10 northern tribes, taken them away into captivity. And now they're threatening the two southern tribes, which at this time Hezekiah is giving leadership to. Second Kings 19, I'm reading beginning in verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying. This is one of the messengers of the pagan kings sending him to Hezekiah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezef and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharvim, and of Hena and Iva? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went into the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. He's saying, Lord, read this letter. Listen to what they are saying about you, my God. Read this letter. Hear their threats. I hope you've fallen on your face before God and, and just laid it all out before him. Now, God already knew the problem, and Hezekiah and Elijah both knew that God knew the problem. They weren't informing God of anything. You're simply, earnestly, fervently asking God to identify with you in your problem. And sometimes that's what faith does. Look at verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heavens and earth. You made heaven and earth. He's saying, God, there's no one greater than you. It's a beautiful picture, and you can read his powerful prayer. You might want to read it this afternoon in verses 16 through 19. And if you know the rest of the story, through this prayer, Hezekiah the king moved the hand of God and stayed the Assyrians. That's what Elijah is doing. He's stretched out over the top of this boy. He says, God, this boy is dead. I beg you, please raise him up. Maybe he's saying, Lord, if need be, 
take, my, take the life out of me and give it to this boy. We don't know all that's transpiring in his heart and mind. But we do know this is an earnest prayer. I don't think he is setting some precedent as to how we should pray. There is no such precedent before him or after. But three times over, he's stretching himself over this boy. And in faith and in earnestness, he's asking God to work. God had already said back in verse 14, I'm going to provide for the widow and presumably for the boy until the famine is over. God, what kind of testimony is this to me as a man of God? And no doubt this man who lived in the room above her house had probably even fallen in love with this little kid. Oh, God, move. Please intervene. Please do something for your own glory. And so God answers, verse 22 informs us. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. That's what we need. Earnest, fervent prayer for the glory of God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. God, forgive us for our cold, lukewarm, half-hearted, take-it-or-leave-it kind of prayers, which for the most part are nothing more than a mark of unbelief. And so because of the compliance of Elijah's faith, because of his obedience, that led to the challenge of Elijah's faith, and so he's able to realize the confirmation of faith. The confirmation of faith. Notice God raised up the boy, verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah says, see, your son is alive. What kind of promise would it be if Elijah told the widow that God would only take care of her and then her son died? God could have done that, but he chose not to. He promised to meet this woman's need, and he does it on every level. He does it through the miraculous supply of food, and now by raising her son from the dead. Verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Oh, that your faith, my faith, would be so developed and so alive that someone would say, he is a man of God, she is a woman of God. The message they preach is the truth of God. God is still looking for men and women, teenagers, boys and girls who will believe God by faith. Now let me make three applications as we close our time off. Number one, if our faith is to develop, then when God provides, he does so, understand he does so, based on his word and we need to obey. When God provides, he does so based on his word and we need to obey. Trusting God by faith involves hearing a word from God. And I'm not talking about the Sarah Young Jesus calling nonsense or the Beth Moore who gets direct text messages from God, that sheer folly and error and false teaching. I'm talking about the person who spends time in the Word of God, and then God takes the revelation that he has written here on the pages of Scripture, and he illumines it to your heart so that you might walk by faith. Think about it. Elijah said, God told Elijah, go to Zarephath, find a widow. And what does he do? He goes. He arose and he went. And his faith is in direct response to what God had said. That's Hebrews 11. 
Person after person after person, God says something, and they respond in faith. Noah built an ark, and he builds an ark for the next 120 plus years. God told Abraham to pack up and move to Mesopotamia, to leave Mesopotamia and go to the place where God was going to show him. And he has no idea where he is going, what direction to go, how far it is. But because he had a clear word from God, he walks and he walks and he walks. To use Jesus' metaphor, he walks to the ends of the earth like the queen did coming to hear Solomon's wisdom because he walked nearly 1,200 miles before then God appeared to him and said, Abraham, this is the place and we call today Israel. You see, faith, true faith, always responds in obedience. It believes what God has said. And God did not bring this widow to Elijah. He sent Elijah to the widow, which, by the way, is a reminder to me that very often God's provision involves human responsibility. You can't say, well, Lord, give me a job and just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. No, faith responds in obedience. It expectantly looks for God to provide. And to sit there and do nothing is a mark of unbelief. A widow was told to take the last of her flour and her oil and to make a meal. And verse 15 said, what did she do? She did. She did. She obeyed according to the word of the Lord. That's what faith is. It's staking everything on what God has promised. Now, some of you may know more apologetics or philosophy or theology than this widow ever knew. But it's not sheer knowledge that matures. You can have five degrees after your name and be an infant in the realm of faith. This widow learned how to walk by faith one step at a time, and she learned through her affliction. It reminds me of Psalm 119, 71. The psalmist said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. See, it's often in the crucibles of life that God is going to develop us. And so this widow, what she had was just an unexpected event. Suddenly her boy is dead, the one whom she had been giving everything for. She was living for this little guy. And for you, there may be some unexpected crucible. It might be the death of a child. It might be the accident you have. It might be the job you lost. It might be the engagement that was broken. It might be the marriage that you're in that has been filled with storms from day one and you never thought of such a thing would happen. And so for many of us, the crucible is some unexpected event. And as James affirms, trials come in many sizes and shapes and colors. But one of the marks of maturity is that it trusts God through it. It believes that God will never leave us nor forsake us, that he'll be right there with us in the crucible. And so the first lesson I learned is that when God provides, he always does so based on his word, and we need to obey. But secondly, when God provides, he may provide in ways that we don't expect. The longer you walk with God, the more you discover that you can't put God in a box, that his ways are often unpredictable. I mean, think about Elijah. His dealings with the Lord just remind us of this simple truth. I mean, back in verse 4, we studied it last week. God said, I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. An Israelite reading this would cringe a little bit. 
when they read that statement because according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, this is one of the unclean animals. He's a scavenger. And God is going to use an unclean scavenger to bring him food. Ravens, I mean, they were off limits in the mind of a Jew. And yet God brings him bread, lechem. It's a, it's, a, it's a Hebrew word that can refer to literal bread or just food. And they brought also meat morning and evening. What kind of meat? Don't ask Elijah, just cook it well and eat it. I don't know what they brought him. Maybe they brought only kosher food. But they brought it. And then when the brook finally dries up, arise, go to Zarephath. I've commanded a widow to provide for you there. Go over to the heart of enemy territory, and a widow will provide for you there. That's an oxymoron. A widow is going to provide for me there? You know, it's not like widows back in those days could go to night school and get a degree in computers and get a job in some office. No, they were the poorest of the poor without being married. They'd have dirt under their fingernails, scratching out their existence from day to day. You don't go to the poorest people in the community. But again, God's ways are creative, and his ways are not our ways. And if God chooses to use dirty birds in the poorest of widows to pull it off, then he can do it. Here's the point. You just don't put God in a box. We need, as James says, to let the trials have their perfect results. That's a choice that we might be perfect, teleos, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So this chapter just instructs us that faith is often forged under fire. And when you are in the crucible of a hard time, God wants to strengthen you, not weaken you. He wants to grow you and mature you. Third and finally, I learned from this passage that when God provides, we must not ignore his provision. While God chose the Hebrew people to be his chosen people, he did not choose them exclusively. God promised to make Abraham a great nation and that through him all the families of the world would be blessed. Jesus reminded the Samaritan woman in John 4 that salvation is from the Jews. And this salvation was not hidden. Israel was to share it, and ultimately God's servant, the Messiah. God said of him, I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so here's a woman living in the heart of Gentile land where Baal worship is followed, and she is a believer in the God of Israel. How did she come to faith? Well, she responded to the light she had. And light responded to brought more life. Remember, this is centuries before Peter ever goes into Cornelius' house there in Acts 10 and preaches to that Gentile riffraff. But she came to faith in the same way Jethro and Rahab and Ruth and Nahum and Abednelech came to faith. They responded to the light they had as Gentiles and they believed in the God of Israel. Peter said in Acts 10, after Cornelius and his home comes to faith, I most certainly understand now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. You say, okay, pastor, I still don't get your point that when God provides, we must not ignore his provision. Well, actually, 
My point comes from some divine commentary. So fast forward to Luke chapter 4, and we'll conclude with this. Luke chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. As the prophets corporately said, he would be raised in Nazareth. He makes his headquarters Capernaum, and that city prophetically is the only city that would fit the prophecy in Isaiah. And he dies in Jerusalem. So he's in Nazareth. His public ministry has begun. And he stands up as the guest rabbi and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me in verse 18, Luke 4, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue attendant. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people are ooing and eyeing. And what a great preacher. What gracious words are falling from his lips. But he's not a men pleaser. And so he continues his sermon. Look now at verse 24, Luke 4. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill, which is on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Some of you have been there with me. It's a class A spot. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, why were these hometown folks so filled with rage? Well, because there were plenty of widows and lepers that Elijah and Elisha could have healed, but they didn't go there. Elijah, if you remember, he went to Heathensburg. He went to Gentile territory. And in doing so, God was bypassing Israel because of their unbelief and conferring a blessing of grace on a Gentile. And that made them mad. After all, they were God's chosen people. But just because God chose them as a nation didn't mean automatically they were all saved. Korah and his whole bunch were literally alive, swallowed up into hell. And so when Jesus reminded the folks of Nazareth in this passage, he's basically saying, just because you are Jewish does not make you right with God. There were some Gentiles in Elijah's day who were more right with God than Jews were. And we could say the same today. Some Gentiles think, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Christian. I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, I may even go to a good church, so that must make me right with God. You know, God and me, we're tight. That's what the folks in that day thought. But God is not a respecter of persons. It's not a matter of whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It's a matter of whether you've been born again. So God provides for the people of Israel. He's providing for the people of Israel in this day by the things he does. Some of you are in Proverbs 3 today because it's the third of the month. And you read already, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. 
Discipline comes on two levels, one to correct us, the other just to shape us. You can be right in the center of God's will and come under God's discipline. We only think of it in terms of spanking. There's two sides to it in Scripture. Elijah, like this woman, was right in the center of God's will, and God brought a crucible. Paul, if you remember, 2 Corinthians 12, pled three times, God, take this trial, take this thorn of the, in the flesh away from me. But God says, no, I want to use it. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God simply told Paul, I'm all that you need. And we need to understand that when our faith is in the crucible, that God is not like a doctor who says, well, you know, just take this medicine three times a day and you'll be fine. Sometimes there's no quick antidote. And we just have to trust God even when we don't know what is happening. And as you study God's word and you spend time with him, God will give you everything you need to be sustained. This is true for the believer, and it's true for the unbeliever, which is why Jesus said to the people of his day, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, he's the light of the world. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. If you despise God's word, if you just arrogantly yawn at God's word and do nothing with God's truth, God can remove that light. Jesus said the devil can be given permission that he might snatch the seed that you may not believe and be saved. There's an urgency to responding in faith for the believer to grow and for the unbeliever to be saved. Now, our Father, we thank you that this was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that this is not simply what you have said, but what you are saying to your people, that all Scripture is God-breathed, it is profitable. So help us wherever we may be, wherever we may be in our journey with you as believers, to take these truths today and to apply them to our lives. I pray today for some of the saints who are listening, who are members of this church, some who are not, who are listening in another part of the country or the world. But they love you. But they are in the thick of a hut crucible. And they don't understand it. Help them to do what Elijah did, just to lay it all out before you. You already know it. But help us to lay it out before you that we might come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. And help someone today, Father, who's never been saved to realize that Jesus paid it all there on Golgotha, that he died for 100% of their sin and proved it when he was raised from the dead so that he can invite them to call on his name and you will instantly and forever save them. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it to the glory of God and in Jesus' holy name, amen. To listen again to today's message entitled Faith in the Crucible, the second in our multi-part series on the prophet Elijah, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877 787 
888-789-7478 and requesting program ELI2. Things are looking up for our Search the Scriptures trip to Israel. The majority of Israelis have been vaccinated for the COVID-19 virus and travel is opening up. Find out more about the two trips slated for early and mid-October by visiting stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our character study of the prophet Elijah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.